0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, guys. Good morning. I'm just saying if you guys are awake. I don't know. It was a test. How are we? Good. Fantastic. Guys, thank you for being being here tonight. I know that it gets hard sometimes to, to get out the door on... Uh, on a Wednesday night, with just the busyness of work and kids and everything else in life, but um, it is it is good to be here, and, and not not just so that we can learn, um, but it's good to be here because uh, it brings life into our week. Amen. Um, worshiping God brings more clarity than anything else. Um, prayer and, and relationship with believers and community is it's it's the life that we need to get through. Man, it's just such a joy to be with you guys. So. Um, we are going to get into first Samuel, just real quick, um, quick announcement next week, uh, is the day before Thanksgiving and kind of the heritage tradition is that we, we do a service sort of, uh, in light of Thanksgiving. So next Wednesday we'll be right here. It's going to be a little bit more full, but, um, there's not going to be childcare for that service. It's going to be an all family service. And what that really means is we kind of try to gear it for that, like the teaching. Uh, and this is what Jeff said. Okay. this is going to be like super short. Okay. So you can hold him to it. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, it'll be a really short teaching. It'll be mostly worship and just a time to really thank God and praise God for all that he's done. So guys, come out next Wednesday. It's going to be really, really good and really, really fun. And it's going to, I think in a lot of ways, it's going to prepare our hearts for what Thanksgiving really is the next day as we all kind of join with our families and things like that. So you're not going to want to miss that. Um, so let's let's pray and and... and <laughs> I know I kind of do this every time and there's kind of a reason. I'm going to ask you guys to invite the Lord. Um, there's something that kind of clicks in your brain when you switch from just sort of sitting and receiving to actually activating and pursuing and pressing into the Lord. And, and, and I think that that needs to happen um, so that you guys are ready to receive from God. So would you take 20 seconds and just... Um, don't check out, don't zone out, don't fall asleep, but really just spend 20 seconds praying to God that he would speak to you tonight and that he would be real to you tonight and that he would prophesy into your life tonight. Would you do that? Father, you uh, hold the words uh, of eternal life. God, you hold eternal perspective. You have all wisdom and knowledge in the universe. There is nothing that you don't know. There's no answer that you don't hold. There's no clarity and vision that we cannot attain through you, God. And Lord, I pray that tonight... That through your word and through these stories, uh, these historical events, bring vision into our life, bring conviction into our life, bring encouragement. Into our life. And Jesus, would you, as our shepherd, speak through my flesh, speak through my shortcomings, speak through my inadequacies, and make much of Christ tonight through the foolishness of preaching the word. May your eternal truth shine into the darkness of our hearts. And we all pray that and agree in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Jesus and the disciples, after a long day of ministry, After a long day of Jesus telling parables and uh, interpreting parables, could have been a 15, a 16-hour day of nonstop ministry, Jesus and the disciples pile into a boat. And don't picture a yacht. Don't picture a large boat. Picture a small boat, maybe a 10 or a 15-foot boat. This could have been, probably was, maybe Peter's fishing boat. uh, Would have been a poor man, a poor man's boat. They climb into this boat, and in this boat has a small space underneath it where probably one person could lay down in there. And as they're cro- uh, crossing the Sea of Galilee, and don't picture an ocean, picture a, a fairly large lake. As they're crossing the Sea of Galilee to the other side, uh, something crazy sort of comes in out of nowhere. This huge storm just Engulfs and completely consumes the Sea of Galilee like it can happen there. The wind gets pretty intense on that lake. And as this huge storm comes, uh, the disciples begin to freak out, which tells you a lot considering the fact that the disciples, most of them were fishermen. So they had their sea lakes, they knew how to control a boat, they knew how to manage a storm. But this storm was severe, the storm was frightening. This storm got the disciples to a point where they felt like they had no longer any control over what was going to happen. And, and meanwhile, Jesus is snoozing in the bottom of the boat. He's had a long day of ministry. Okay? Jesus is God, but he was in human flesh, so he got tired just like you and I get tired. And because of that, he is resting, apparently not realizing that the boat is you know, get, getting crazy up above. Now, what's happening here in in this moment? What's happening is that the disciples are feeling a a natural human instinct, and that is fear, right? But what is fear? Okay, this is actually the first question on your guys' little fill-in-the-blank there if you'd like to, to fill these out as I go. What is fear? Well, fear is really just lack of control. It's lack of control. It's feeling as though you don't have control over a situation in a specific moment. Fear is kind of like, it's kind of like this. When you're driving uh, over, I I remember one time driving over the Siskiyou Pass into my hometown of Wairika, and it was late at night. It was dark, and I was uh, going about 70 miles an hour, like you do in the 55-mile-an-hour zone, uh, you know, and, you know, just everything's fine. I'm warm and cozy in my car, and everything's good. I feel like I have complete control of my situation, and maybe you guys have felt this feeling before, but as I'm coming around a corner, uh, I begin to feel all of a sudden that I have no control over my car. I hit a a small patch of black ice, and it's the craziest, most startling, uh, intense moment when you realize that it doesn't matter what you do, your car is basically at the mercy of the ice. Okay, and the story kind of ends there, right? Luckily it was a small patch of ice and I didn't get in an accident, but I always remember that feeling and that feeling of fear that shoots into your guts when you realize for one instant that you are no longer in control of your car, that your car is going to go wherever it wants to go and you no longer have any control over it. Now the disciples are feeling this exact same feeling in this boat at night as the storm is raging. So they go and they wake up Jesus, They shake him and they say, Jesus, where are you, man? Why aren't you up here? And they say this, they say, do you not even care that we're about to perish? Like, hey, are you aware of the fact that we're about to die, Jesus? They tell him. So Jesus wakes up, climbs out of the hole, probably very calm, very composed, very relaxed, opens his mouth Just like God, through Jesus, in before creation even happened, created the heavens and earth, God opened his mouth, just like Jesus opened his mouth, and creation obeyed him. And the waves ceased, and everything became calm. The disciples are completely stunned, completely blown away. And then Jesus turns to address the disciples' behavior, um, and, and he does an interesting thing. He connects their lack of faith to their fear. He says why, why did you fear? Why did you fear? Was it do you not have faith in me? Do you not understand that I'm with you that I'm in the boats? And then this interesting thing happens the disciples are no longer fearing the storm because they've seen the sto- they've seen the storm what? controlled. They've seen the storm be taken under control. Now they're fearing something else, you know who it is? Jesus. Because they realize in an instant that they have no control over this man. No control. And it made them fearful. Now Israel, as we've been learning, uh, if you guys don't know, we're in this Old Testament series, uh, working our way at a 30,000 foot view through the Old Testament, book by book, uh, one book a night. We're all the way into the book of 1 Samuel. And I've noticed sort of a pattern an interesting progression about, uh, the, bu- uh, about the nation of Israel throughout the books that we've studied. So in Genesis, Israel itself started out really as one man. Who was? Not necessarily. Israel started out as? Abraham. Abraham. Good job. Yeah. Mankind started out as Adam. Israel started out with one man, and that was Abraham. Sorry, I didn't ask that question very well. Uh, So in Genesis, Israel is one man. That one man multiplies into a family. And then in the book of Exodus, that family becomes a huge people group. Okay? A massive people group that is enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt. Then that people group is freed and set free out into the wilderness, and then they become sort of this wandering mob, (laughs) this wandering, uh, huge, massive group of people without purpose, uh, sort of just wandering around in the wilderness for 30 years. They're a people group with an intricate worship system, because in the book of Leviticus, God taught them how to worship God and taught them how to pursue God. But nonetheless, they're just sort of this big, wandering group of people. In Deuteronomy, the whole generation dies off, and they become a new generation. And then in the book of uh, Judges, or Joshua, they become a mobile army. They go from being a wandering mob in the wilderness to being a mobile army. Everything that they do now is fixated on taking out nations. And then they go from being a mobile army to the book of Judges, where they become sort of like the Wild West, We learned about that two weeks ago, right? They literally, like the medieval times, they're like this tribal group of people that can't get along, that are killing each other, doing terrible things to each other. They're leaderless, they're lawless. It's literally the medieval dark wild west of Israel's history. In the book of Ruth, we kind of zoomed in and we saw a little story that took place inside of that bigger narrative. But now we're in the book of Samuel and Samuel is a huge turning point for the history of Israel in the Bible. Up until this point, literally, they've been not an established nation. They've been a group, a a group of tribes. They've been uh, sort of just this massive ethnic people group invading a land not their own. And now in the book of Samuel, everything changes. They finally become an established kingdom. It's very important to understand. Now, was them becoming an established kingdom God's ultimate goal? Yes and no. It's kind of a trick question. Yes, God's goal for Israel was for them to become an established kingdom. But not the kind that they became. Not the kind that they became. God's plan for them to become a kingdom was bigger than that. See, God's win for Israel was never comfort and control and establishment. God's win for Israel was to be their king. It was to be their king. To rule the kingdom of Israel as their king. Now, this progression of Israel is familiar to me and probably familiar to you because it, it really represents my own personal life and my walk with the Lord. You know, God called us like he did Abraham, sort of wandering in a, in a, in a place called Ur, and he calls us, he says, I have, I have plans for you, I have vision for you, and we got saved. And then God saved us out of slavery, just like he did in the book of Exodus. And then like in the book of Leviticus, God gives us this avenue, this access to God through Christ, and then we go through some, some seasons like in the book of Numbers where we're wandering around trying to figure out who we are and God is sanctifying us in these seasons of wandering. And then we go through seasons like Deuteronomy where uh, we have to get new vision. And then we go through seasons like Judges where we're lawless and ruleless, and struggling with idolatry and God has to bring in things to save us and heal us. But we also go through seasons as Christians where everything is kind of good. We go through seasons where actually we're established. Where we seem to have control over our our situation. Now, some of you guys in this room tonight are probably feeling like you're not in that season. Like you don't have control. Like you're not established in the Lord. Like you're in a season of wandering or a season needing vision or in a season of struggle. Uh, But some of you guys in this room are probably feeling like you are in a good season. A season of control. a A season of establishments. Israel finds themselves in the book of Samuel in a season of establishment, a season of control where they are finally set as a kingdom. The book of Samuel is sort of a coming of age for Israel, okay? Um, It's a coming of age. But with being established, listen to this, with being established comes a newer and a sneakier and a more pervasive idol, and that idol is called control with those seasons where everything seems to be okay and we're not struggling with the archaic idols like they did in the book of Judges, come the more sneaky idols. The I got it all together idol. The everything's good, I'm under control, my bills are paid and I come to church idol. The look at my life, look at my list of moral decisions idol. And all of those at their core come back to control. This is the place that Israel finds themselves in. In my life as a Christian, I've always longed to be in a season of establishment where I'm not feeling like I'm wandering, where I'm not feeling like I'm, I'm in the desert, where I feel like I'm established and set and settled in a place. But a lot of times at the heart of that, you know what that really is? It's just me wanting to be in control. It's me wanting to be in a place where I feel like I'm in control. Listen, God's will for you and for Israel is that you would be in his kingdom under his kingship. That you would be in his kingdom under his kingship. So here's what we're gonna do. How, here's how we're gonna attack uh, the book of 1 Samuel. The setup is basically this. There's three elements to this book that are going to sort of help us understand that truth, that God wants us to be in his kingdom under his kingship. And these three, three elements are basically this. First, it's the ministry of Samuel. We'll look at that. Secondly, it's the kingship of Saul, both through Israel and through Saul. And then thirdly, it's the struggles of David. This book sort of centers around three primary characters, as I just said, Samuel, Saul, and David. And the majority of the stories are about those three characters. And those three characters, if you can kind of draw this out in your mind, all center around this idea of kingdom and kingship. As the nation, again, turns the corner from being this tribal, uh, wild west, medieval kind of group of human beings to actually being an established kingdom. These three characters are the central part of the book. And there's a lot of overlap about these characters. So it makes for kind of a messy outline. Um, it's gonna, it, it makes it hard to just say, here's one, here's one, here's one, because they all overlap and they all intersect. Samuel's very involved in Saul and and, uh, King and David's life, and Saul is very involved in David's life, and David is very involved in Saul's life, and it's, it's really a story about these three primary characters. Each of these characters ultimately remind us of God's plan to rule his people. That's the purpose, and if you want to write it on your sheet, uh, the theme of the book is kingdom and kingship, okay? That is the theme of the book of 1 Samuel. So let's start with the first illustration. That's the ministry of Samuel. Um, If you kind of want to outline this in your head, chapters 1 through 7 is really primarily where we see uh, the ministry of Samuel, and like I said, he's really all throughout the book, but the first illustration is the ministry of Samuel, and that's chapters 1 through 7. So... The book of Samuel really opens up not really with some epic war story or with David or with Saul. It actually opens up with this really moving, um, kind of sweet story about this woman named Hannah. And Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah loved his wife named Hannah, but Hannah was unable to have kids. She longed to have kids and she was unable to. So Hannah one day goes, this is all in chapter one. Hannah goes to the, the temple uh, where a man named Eli was the high priest of the temple. And Hannah goes in and begins to make a prayer to the Lord saying, Lord, would you give me a child? She longed for a child. And guess who overhears? Eli the high priest. He overhears this prayer, and so he steps in, and God sort of prompts him to prophesy into this woman's life, and basically say that she was going to have a child, that she would bear a child. Now, I got to say, just as a side note, I love that God always seems to use that story. Have you noticed that? There's so many stories in the Bible uh, of supernatural conception, where where women could not seem to have children, and then they were able to supernaturally have children. Uh, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist, if you remember, uh, Elizabeth's hu- husband, uh, Zechariah, I think it was, was in, in the temple, and God, uh, you know, appeared to him, and then they had a baby. Sarah and, and, and uh, Abraham had Isaac, supernaturally, and then, of course, Mary, who bore Jesus. And each of those characters play crucial roles in displaying the heart of God. That's one thing that, that binds all of those characters together. Both Samuel, John the Baptist, Isaac, which really, Isaac was a picture of Christ, they all illustrate Christ. And what I love about it is that they all started through supernatural means. And it's as though God is saying, you know, that these people and their ministry don't ever forget that it started by my power. It started by my might. It started by God supernaturally intervening and creating life in in a woman's womb. But that's a side note. So Hannah has this child as, as, as uh, Eli um, prophesies into her life. She goes home. Um, she, she, she gets pregnant. She has this son, and his name is Samuel. And Samuel, again, is one of the core characters uh, in our book. Now, she, she commits Samuel to be a Nazarite. And what that basically means is it's just simply a vow that, that this son, this child, was completely and fully devoted to the Lord. And at an early age, Samuel was raised in the temple with Eli, and at an early age, he heard the voice of God. He was a prophet, okay, which is really, really cool. Samuel's voice, which is my, or Samuel's name, which is my name, uh, also means um, heard by God, okay, as in God heard Hannah's prayer, which is read. Now, Samuel kind of fulfilled two roles in his story. The first was that he was the last judge, and and the second is that he was the first prophet, okay? He was the last judge, and he was the first prophet. Prophet. But Samuel also signifies something very important that happens in the history of Israel and the Old Testament narrative. Okay? And what Samuel really embodies is the change from a theocracy to a monarchy. Okay. A theocracy means basically this: theos meaning God. Okay, a theocracy means that God is the leader of the nation. Now, up until this time, even though uh, many times they didn't follow God, ultimately God led his nation, whether it be through Moses, whether it be through the judges, whether it be through Samuel, they were a theocracy. And then the turning point here is in the book of Samuel, where they go from being a theocracy to being a monarchy, where now they have one king, one ruler, one leader, and it's a pretty significant shift that takes place. Now, the other thing that Samuel is that's crucial to understand as you read the the narrative of, of, of this book is that Samuel is really the voice of the true third character of the book. Now, I said Saul and David and Samuel were the three primary characters, but really this story is about Saul and David and God. That's really who this story is about. Samuel really serves more as the vocal voice or the the expression of God in his part of this story. He really is truly the third character. Now, in Samuel's uh, story, in the beginning of, of the book of Samuel, uh, Israel is battling the Philistines, and the Philistines seem to be the enemy that they're primarily fighting all, out th- all throughout the book of Samuel. Uh, and the next story that we're going to look at really reveals the struggle between God and man for control. So look, take a look. At chapter 4 through 7, we see this crazy story about uh, basically Israel uh, going to face off with the Philistines. And Eli, who uh, was the, the high priest at that time, Eli goes out and his two sons, and they basically say, okay, we need to win this battle. So in order to win this battle, what we're going to do is we're going to trot out and we're going to put forth the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, if you guys remember the Ark of the Covenant, this, this box that was specifically designed and, and made to point Israel to the kingship of God. Think about everything that was in the Ark of the Covenant. The staff pointed to God as their leader. The the manna pointed to God as their provider. The Ten Commandments pointed to God as their lawgiver. Everything about the Ark was to symbolize that God was their king. And, And what do they do? They're in a point of battle, and the first thing they do is they pull out the Ark, sort of like it's some kind of good luck charm. They put it forth thinking that somehow God is going to come through for them simply because they put the Ark forward. But as Samuel describes... Eli and his sons were wicked. They didn't follow the way of God and they didn't submit themselves under God. They weren't obedient to God. They weren't being controlled by God. So instead of actually being obedient to God in battle, they simply put forth the ark thinking that they can control God. And guess what happens? They lose the battle. They get their tails kicked by the Philistines, and oh no, the unthinkable happens. The Ark of the Covenants, the picture of the holiness and presence of God, literally gets taken and captured by the Philistines. I remember the first time I read that, I'm like, that's crazy. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Whatever will God do? Can he defend himself? You guys ever seen Indiana Jones, where they open the box, right? Um, yeah. That's totally fiction. But anyways, that's what, that's what I was picturing. Now, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow the Ark of the Covenant to be taken in, the, in this story of chapters four through seven? Well, firstly, because he wanted to remind Israel that he cannot be controlled. Guess what, Israel? I know that you think that I'm in your pocket. I know that you think that I'm just here to do your bidding and that I'm not really requiring any obedience of you. Um, but but that's not really the case. And God wanted to prove that. He wanted to show that. So he allowed Israel to lose, to fail, and for the Ark of the Covenant to be captured. And this serves as a really good reminder for us, guys. And, and that is simply this, that, that we sometimes, oftentimes, Take the things that God gave for us to be a reminder of his power and his kingship, and we try to control them. We use them as a means to control God. Let me give you, give me, give you an example of this. Um, so a few hundred years ago, even 500 years ago, there was a period of time where the church built these massive, ornate cathedrals. You guys have seen them before. Now, have you ever wondered why they did that? They did it not necessarily at first to draw attention to the church. They actually did it to draw attention to God. They, they built these massive steeples, uh, not, not only the, the the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic, not only the, the Eastern Orthodox church, but even Protestantism early on built these steeples and these, these really immaculate churches where the, the wood carvings were amazing, and you go in and you just feel sort of all of your attention drawing up. And they did that on purpose. They did that because they wanted to use a tool to remind God's people that he was their king, that he was in control, to draw their attention up. But what happened over time? Man began to make too much of those things, right? Now it's all about the building. Now it's all about the, the ornate decorations. Now it's all about what, whatever these special, uh, you, know, you know, holy things are. You know, the undergarments of Paul the Apostle or whatever it are. You know, these things that we, we once thought would help us, draw us to remind us of God, have become God. And this is exactly what Israel did with the Ten Commandments. I think we do the same thing today largely in megachurches. Or any church, for that matter, that makes too much of production. Okay, you start to lean too heavily on the thing that used to draw you to God, man, the music, if the music was really good, then then people would be drawn to worship. Praise the Lord. I'm all about that. You know, if the lighting is good, that may support people being able to focus on God. But what happens when that gets flipped and out of place? You start looking to the production, you start looking to the lighting, you start looking to the the way of preaching, you start looking to the illustration, to the parking lot, to the couch, to the coffee shop, to the bookshop, to the whatever it is to become the way of sort of forcing God's presence to be there and, and then things get out of whack. It's the same exact thing that happened with the cathedrals, with the ornate buildings. And we can even do the same thing with the Bible. We can make so much of the very thing God gave us to draw our attention up that we actually replace him with knowledge. We replace a real and raw relationship with God with a, sort of a um, just obsessing over more and more and more knowledge. Listen, it is easier to try to, to control God than to be controlled by God. I'll say that again. I don't think it hits you. It's easier to try to control God than it is to be controlled by God. Why do you think the Christian life is so stinking hard? Why do you think church is so hard? Do you know how hard it is to remain authentic as a church? How hard it is to keep the main thing the main thing? Because what happens over time is you naturally start to make this shift away from being controlled by God, and you start to try to control God. We want God to do what we want God to do. We want God to work how we want God to work, and we're going to shove him into the way that we do things. It's one of the biggest things that church leadership struggles with. How do we remain in a posture of God being in charge of his church and not of the church being in charge of God? Well, I want it to be this way. Well, I want it to be that way. And God says, what about what I want? What about how I want my church to be led? What about how I want my worship to be conducted? Let me ask you guys, when was the last time you put away all the means and just simply sought God? What I mean by that, when was the last time that you, you, you put away everything that, that might control some kind of emotion or, or, or make you feel better about your situation or just alleviate the pressure and you literally just fell on your face and asked God with nothing else but you and him? You, you, that seems like oh, uh, Christianity 101, right? But we don't. We turn to a podcast. We turn to a devotional. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, okay? But don't make those things your God. To be a Christian is to have a real and a raw and an open conversation with Jesus where you don't just turn to things that can distract you or things that can encourage you, but you turn to God himself. Don't make the mistake that Israel made in trying to control God. There's no counterfeit for raw in broken and humble petition before God of his saving grace just coming before him and saying God I just need you I just need you I need your will I need to know what you have for me Now in this story the next not the next kind of natural thought is like okay well what happened to the ark right The ark was stolen. It was taken away. What's going on? Well, God can fight for himself, okay? (laughs) He can. He's not, like, God's not worried. Like, oh, no, I'm captured by the Philistines. Like, you know, he's not the box. But you know what I'm saying. Like, oh, no, my my ark is captured by, by the Philistines. Well, the Philistines, what do they do? This same thing the Israelites were doing. They tried to control God. They say, great, now we have this source of power, like it's some kind of nuclear weapon or something. Nu- nuclear weapon, nuclear nuclear weapon, whatever it is, uh, and, and they, they put him into the temple with their gods, as as though he can just kind of be stashed or stored into into their temple along with the god Dagon. And you guys probably know the story. They wake up in the next morning and their gods are all fallen, in a, in a posture of bowing to the Ark. They set them all back up go back to bed. Next day, wake up. All of their idols are broken and and arms and limbs have broken off, things like that. And and, and just in the symbol of God saying, oh, you think you can put me with your gods? You think you can control me, Philistines? Think again. Not going to happen. So after that, Israel sort of has this short period of of kind of repentance after they have the ark stolen and they're freaking out about it. And they get, the, the Philistines basically beg, by the way, the Israelites to take the ark back. Take it, we don't want it because guess what? A series of plagues broke out on the Philistines because they had the ark of God. So they said, you know, Give it back, take it. We don't want it. So Israel gets the ark back. And, in, and because of that, they kind of walk into this season uh, for a little bit of, of repentance and humility. And it's in that season that Samuel is the judge for Israel. The last judge. The last time that Israel would be ruled by a judge. But it wasn't to last. As we will see, the roots of man's desire to rule himself run much deeper than anyone understood. Okay, Uh, it it just couldn't be. Man couldn't handle the thought of this theocracy. They couldn't handle it. So let's look at the second illustration. Uh, And this is the stories of King Saul, okay? The kingship of Saul. And really this is chapters eight all the way through 31. So really all the way to the end of the book. Um, And there's a lot about David in there that we'll look at as well. But let's just start out by looking at Saul. So in chapters eight through 10, After Samuel's uh, short reign of of judging Israel, uh, Israel comes to Samuel as the prophet, and and they say, Samuel, we want a king. Okay, we want a king. Now, why did they want a king? There's a few reasons. Their excuse was, you know, Samuel, you're getting kind of old. You know, you're, you're kind of out of touch, and, and your kids are not walking in your ways. They're, they're wicked. Uh, they don't seem to be interested in serving you, uh, but we want a king. Now, that, wasn't the really, that really wasn't the real reason they wanted a king, okay? That's what they said, but it, it was really much deeper than that because we know that because they didn't come to Samuel and say, Samuel, you know God. You're the voice of God. Tell us who should be our king or tell us who our next leader is going to be because your kids are no good. That's not what they did. They didn't say, Samuel, seek the Lord for us. Tell us who God wants for us. That's not what they did. They came to Samuel and said, hey, tell God we want a king. Tell God what we want. Tell him that we're in control and that we want a king. Why do they want a king? Because they wanted to be like the other nations. It specifically says that in the book of Samuel. They, wanted, they looked around and they saw other kingdoms and other established nations that had kings. And they say, I want a king as well. They wanted to be established. And ultimately, they wanted someone to look to instead of God. That's really kind of what it comes down to. So God grants their wish. If you guys have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And this will be up on the screen, I think, as well. This is basically what God says in response to their request for a king. God says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. In other words, give them a king. Give them what they want. And then he gives his reason. He says, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Again, what was God's ultimate intention for Israel in becoming a kingdom? To be their king. And what is Israel saying now? Yeah, we don't really want you to be our king, God. So God says, Samuel, don't get your feelings hurt, dude. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Because Samuel, you represent the idea of me ruling them. And it's not Samuel that they don't like. It's the idea of God ruling them. Because it's easier to control God than to be controlled by God, right? It's easier to put yourself in a position where God has to bow down to you than to submit yourself to God. So... In 1 Samuel 8, through 10, or 8, 10 through 12, take a look at that. So Samuel told all the, world, all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king for him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers and so on and so forth. What, what God is saying through Samuel is like, okay, you guys want a king? Here's what it's going to look like. He is going to take everything from you and make it His own. Because that's what kings do. That's what fallen, selfish, self-absorbed, prideful, human, fallen kings do. They don't live for their people. Their people live for them. And God says, if you want a king in place of me, I will give you one. But what it's going to look like is they will take your sons to be his soldiers. And he will take your money to be his money. And he will take your women and your daughters to be his perfumers, whatever that means. And he will take all of your people and your things for himself. Okay? That's essentially what God is saying. Listen, it is human nature, unfortunately, to give up our freedom... For the illusion of safety and control. It's the oldest story in history. Take whatever you want, Saul. We would rather have a king and have the illusion of control than to actually put ourselves in a position and a posture of being subjected to God's will. It's terrifying. We will vote for the devil. I'm not talking about politics. Okay. Okay. We will, as human beings in history, we will vote for the devil if it means that we get to keep the status quo. If we get to get up and do what we want to do. If we get to get up and walk in the way that we want to walk. Okay? Don't take that too far into politics. Unless you want to, just let it be what it is. As human beings, we will follow anyone if it means we don't have to subject ourselves to the fearful idea of really fully being in God's plan because we don't know how to control God, and that's terrifying. The disciples were terrified, because they said, this rabbi, we can't control him. That's terrifying. That's exactly what happened in the case of Saul. So let's meet Saul. Samuel finds Saul. He, he's uh, this, this tall, dark, handsome, young, uh, sort of charismatic man who's out looking for his lost donkeys, like you do, you know. Uh, happens to me all the time. Every time I meet a prophet, I'm looking for my donkeys. Um, and Samuel meets these, these, these uh, I almost said meets these donkeys. Uh, Samuel meets Saul. He's looking for these, these donkeys and God reveals to Samuel, because Samuel was a prophet, that, hey, this is the next king of Israel. God specifically pinpointed and picked Saul for his purposes, for his plan. Now, some good things about Saul. Let's, let's, let's give him a fair shake, okay? Uh, and by the way, don't pick on Saul. You guys are just as bad. I'm just as bad. We would have done a lot of the same stupid things Saul did, okay? This isn't like a beat up Saul, you know, kind of sermon. But here's some good things about Saul. Uh, he fit the bill. Saul looked like what a king should look like. Strong, charismatic, carried himself with confidence, was a foot taller than all the other men. Stronger than all the other men. He, he had the look. He had the appeal. Uh, he, 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 was, he was really what they pictured when they thought of a king, right? He looked good in front of a camera. Okay, he did, he did good in those areas. But the bad things about Saul, which highly outweigh the good things about Saul, was that he was prideful. He was completely full of himself. He did not understand the heart of God. He treated God like some kind of pagan God, as we'll see. He was unable to give over control to God. He, he never could seem to get it through his skull that, that God was in charge. That God was the boss. He just couldn't seem to figure that out. But here's the, really the thing you need to remember about Saul. Saul was the people, okay? Israel didn't want Saul because they wanted to be like Saul. They wanted Saul because he represented the people. God picked Saul not because he was a great guy, but because he was a representation of the heart and the condition and the place that Israel was in. Okay, he was a reflection of his people. The things that Saul did reflected on what his people would have done. So Saul's life in a nutshell is, is really the, the unpacking uh, of what Samuel said that it was going to be his whole life is really just kind of wh- exactly what God said he was going to be. He's, gonna your, your sons, he's, gonna he, he's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to live for himself. He's going to build a kingdom, but it's not going to be a good kingdom, okay? And that's what Saul did. Now, Saul's life started out okay. He started out by rescuing uh, this Israelite outpost from an invasion. He accomplished quite a few military victories. Uh, he, um, he looks like a king. He acts like a king and actually brought some stability in the beginning of Israel, so, so they're stoked. They don't care. Whatever. We got our king. We got our kingdom. We're established. We're not wandering anymore. We're not in the wilderness anymore. We're not in the judges anymore. We're not, you know, we're not in Exodus anymore. Now we're established. We got our king. He's tall. He's dark. He's handsome. He's charismatic. He can win some battles. We're stoked. We're good. Okay? But things don't go that way for very long. It don't go that way for very long. Uh, Saul makes a series of blunders that will really change the trajectory of his life. going from being the anointed man of God to really being a thorn in God's flesh. A thorn in God's foot, if you will. He makes two specific errors, among others. But he makes two specific errors. The first thing Saul does that that was a mistake uh, was this. I think this is on your, 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 your handout there. The first thing he does is, is Saul makes a sacrifice uh, when he wasn't supposed to. So, so Saul is leading his army uh, up against the Philistines, and they're wildly outnumbered, which is just when God loves to step in and do great things, when you obey him, which Saul didn't. So Saul, they're greatly outnumbered. It's not looking good. The odds are stacked against them. And so what does Saul do? He's waiting for Samuel to show up to offer a sacrifice so that they can be victorious. But Samuel's late. Actually, I don't even think Samuel was late. I think Saul just got, he's got impatient. And he's starting to get worried. He's looking at the, the army out there and they're looking, they're stacking up. They're getting pretty intense. So Saul actually says, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to go and I'm going to do the sacrifice. Okay. And you first read that and you think big deal. What what does it matter? Why why is it such a big deal? Well, Samuel shows up and he thinks it's a pretty big deal. Samuel is furious and God is furious. They're both irritated at the fact that Saul stepped in to offer this sacrifice. And this is a turning point in Saul's life right here. This is basically where, where Samuel prophesies over Saul that his reign will end and that he will be replaced. Big deal. Now, why was this such a big deal? Why was God so frustrated? Why was Samuel so irritated that Saul stepped in and did this? Well, for a, few reason, for a few reasons, Samuel had specifically said, which means God, had specifically said, wait seven days and I will come. Okay? Wait seven days. And did Saul wait seven days? No. Disobeyed God. But secondly, it was legally, in the book of Leviticus, only a priest was allowed to offer sacrifices. The king could not go in and offer sacrifices. It specifically was laid out for a reason. And thirdly, because it revealed Saul and Israel's true heart. And that was that they didn't really trust God. That they wanted to take things into their own hands. That they wanted to be in control. Now the second blender that Saul makes is this. Samuel sends Saul to completely annihilate the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had done some, some evil things to Israel further back and the Lord remembered that and so he sent Saul with an army to go and to completely take out the Amalekites and so Saul kind of mostly, 99% obeys the Lord but he doesn't fully obey the Lord. He holds back some of the best livestock and he holds back as a trophy King Agag. Okay? King Agag. And he, 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 he does the opposite of what the Lord says. Now, in Saul's mind, he, he's doing a great thing, right? Because he is actually going to sacrifice. He says these this livestock to the Lord, which which is you know hopefully going to win him some favor and, and things like that. But 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 the Lord is furious at Saul, and he vows again to replace Saul with a king after his own heart. Okay, now again, why was this such a big deal? Why does it matter that Saul kept back? Some livestock. Why does it matter that Saul went ahead and offered a sacrifice in place of God? The reason it matters is, is famously explained by Samuel when he says this, has the Lord as great of a delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. See, what happens is Saul comes to Samuel and says, no, 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 it's cool, Samuel. I was going to give these first fruits to the Lord. So it's Okay. I was going I was gonna I was gonna give him the first fruits. You didn't say anything about Agag, okay? But I was going I was it was gonna be for God. You know, it's like the kid who's you know, gets his hand cut in the cookie jar and the dad comes up and says, What are you doing? And I was getting it for you. Like I was getting you a cookie. You know, I think that's a, a Bill Cosby joke, and I don't know if I can make that anymore. Um but he's still funny. Um it's, it's exactly like that. Like, what are you doing, Saul? Well, I was going to sacrifice it for you, Lord. It was for you. Okay, you know, okay, whatever. But here's the problem, Saul. Has the Lord as great of a delight in sacrifice or burnt offerings as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What Samuel basically says profoundly is like, it doesn't matter how much you sacrifice if you don't obey God. You say, well, that doesn't really sound like the gospel. Isn't it all about sacrifice? No, because here's the deal. Obedience proves... That we know God's goodness. Sacrifice can simply be buying off God. You see, what obedience proves is it says, God, I know that you're good. So I'm going to prove that I know that you're good by listening to you and trusting you. God tells you to do something. I'm going to do it, Lord, because I know that you know what's best for me. Whereas sacrifice can sort of be a pagan type of religion where you say, God, I'm going to give you this sacrifice just because I want you off my back. I thought about this a while back when I did a, a teaching on money, and I was just thinking about, about the tithe and the 10% and, and how it can be a really good thing, but the 10% could also be a really bad thing. Because most of us in our finance sometimes, we write that 10% check to the Lord not to give God something because we love him, but to keep his hands off the 90%. God, I'll give you 10%, just don't touch my 90 That's what sacrifices can become. It's not, it's not a, a complete, humble submission to God's overall will. It's, God, take this, and then I get this. So we get my, my daughter does that with her brother. He wants everything she's playing with, and he will take it from her. He'll rip it out of her hand. And, and, and what she'll do is she'll go find a toy she doesn't care about, and she'll give him, like, hey, just take that, and then I can go play with my stuff. And she's buying him off with something that she knows really means nothing to her. And that's the problem with sacrifices is sometimes it's just this way of buying off God. Like, God, just keep your hands off of my life and I will go to church. God, I'll read my Bible in the morning as long as you don't ask me to do that. God, I'll write you the tithe checks. Just don't ask me to give more than 10% because that I'm not willing to do. God, I'll, I'll give to Christian organizations, but just don't ask me to roll up my sleeves and do anything in our community. Don't ask me to do that, God. I'll come to church and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll empower other people. I'll write the checks all day, but I don't want to have to deal with cultures that I'm on. Unf- I don't want to have to deal with the dirty people in the street. I don't want to deal with the poor. I don't want to, have to do that. I don't want to, have to get my hands into it. That's where sacrifice does not show true faith. Obedience does, because obedience says, "God, I trust that you know what's best for me, and I trust that what you're asking to do, asking me to do, is better than what would happen if I had not." That's the difference. In the story that I opened up with in the beginning, if you guys remember, um, they questioned what? They questioned God's heart. Jesus, do you not care that we're going to perish? Have you are you are you asleep? Yes. Okay. Do you are you sleeping because you don't think that like, you don't care about us, Jesus? And I actually think, I read that story a little different. I don't think Jesus was was, was rebuking them for their lack of faith in believing that he could stop the storm. I think they knew he could stop the storm. I think he was rebuking them for their disbelief in his love for them. Don't you guys know that I love you? Don't you know? Don't you understand? You know, 20 minutes ago, when, when I was preaching, Jesus might say to his disciples, you were all for following me, but then as soon as stuff gets crazy, you're, you're questioning whether I love you or not. Don't do that. Trust me. Trust me. The real reason that what Saul did was such a, a dastardly thing to do to God was that Saul inserted himself into a role that was not his role. On your sheet, I ask you guys, what is the commonality between the two things that Saul did? The commonality is that Saul stepped into the role of the high priest. He said, I- I'm going to step out of my role and I'm going to do what the high priest is supposed to do. Well, what's the high priest supposed to do? The high priest is supposed to make intercession between God and man. That wasn't Saul's job. Saul stepped out of his role and tried to control a role that was not his. Now listen to me. At the heart of every false religion is a man trying to control God or a woman. At the heart of every false religion is a man or a woman trying to control God, trying to be the priest, trying to do enough works to where they are in control of their destiny. They are in control of their eternality. They are in control of what they do every day. That's what cults are built on. Not just cults, false religions. Man-centered, man-produced works. It comes back to control exactly what Saul was doing. And we do the same thing when we step out of the place of receiving Christ's intercessory and trying to be Christ. I want, I want to feel forgiven, so rather than look to Christ for my forgiveness, I'm going to just do penance, I, want to feel, I, don't, I don't want to feel guilt anymore, so rather than actually turn to Christ and believe that he loves me and believe that he's done everything for me to justify me, I'm going to look to myself and what I can do in my strength in order to feel justified. That's false religion. The downfall of Saul was not that he failed. We all fail. The downfall of Saul was not that he was weak or, or that he was, that he was, even that he was prideful. The downfall of Saul was that he did not understand God's heart. He didn't get it. He approached God like a pagan God. He approached God as a God that could be controlled or bought. He approached God that you just throw a box out or that you just go and and offer incense and everything is going to be good. He didn't want to submit to God. He didn't want to be ruled by God. He didn't want God's kingship. He wanted Saul's kingship. That was the issue. That was the struggle. And we do the same thing so often. And now Saul's heart, his hard heart, is contrasted in the book, in, in, in the story of David. We have sort of this opposite, in the, the first part of the story of David. I have five minutes to talk about all about David. Um, man, time flies when you're up here. Um, <clears throat> so unlike Saul... David wasn't selected because of his physical stature, right? David was selected because he was a man after God's own heart. I'm gonna skip a lot. You guys, homework, okay? Go and read all about David in 1 Samuel because I ran out of time. But here's two things quickly. Two things quickly that the first half of David's life exemplifies for us in regards to to being ruled by by, Jesus, by, by God in his kingship. The first was that David refused to kill Saul. He refused to kill Saul. If you guys are familiar with the story, this will make it easier. Uh, Basically, David steps onto the scene. He becomes famous instantly by slaying this giant named Goliath. And and right at that moment, Saul becomes prideful. Okay, there's this challenger now, this young man, and the women are singing songs about David has slayed his thousands, or or Saul has slayed his thousands, and David has slayed his 10,000s. And instantly, Saul is filled with jealousy. And from that point forward, the narrative switched to this this terrible, uh, you know, like, cat and mouse between Saul and David, where Saul is chasing David, trying to kill him, trying to murder him, trying to get rid of him, trying to extinguish him. And it just doesn't seem to happen because David has the favor of the Lord. He's a man after God's own heart. He was a mighty man. It gets to the point where literally David exiles from the kingdom and he, he, he takes a bunch of men that were kind of misfit toys, a bunch of uh, you know just kind of like crazy men. And he says, okay, you guys are my mighty men. And they go out and they basically spend half of David's life just running from Saul trying not to get killed by Saul. And there's two different scenarios where David literally has Saul right in front of him. One of the times, Saul's literally urinating in a cave, okay? And, 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 and David comes up behind him, sneaks up behind him, and cuts off a corner of his, his, his cloak, his garments, his robe. And, and then the second time, uh, they would sneak into Saul's tent and they, and they take a spear. And basically what that means is that David could have killed Saul. All of his problems could have been fixed. All of these issues. Uh, And David would have took the kingdom because he was anointed. But what David didn't do was he didn't take things into his own hands. He was the opposite of Saul. Whereas Saul took things into his own hands, David says, I'm not going to do that. Because God has chosen Saul. And Saul is God's anointed. So I will not. In fact, he even regretted cutting his cloak. And every time he did it, Saul would be repentant. Oh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have chased David. Oh, you're such a great guy, David. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then something would happen and he would chase him and try to kill him again. And it was ultimately Saul's demise. It was ultimately Saul's demise. We see Saul's death in the book of 1 Samuel. He gets overtaken by the Philistines along with with Jonathan and has to fall on his own sword. Why did David refuse to take matters into his own hands? Why did David do this? Because David respected God's will over his own comfort. David respected God's will over his own comfort. He cared more about being in God's will and God's kingship and God's rule than he did about alleviating this nagging pressure of having Saul chase him down and try to kill him. He cared more about that and he showed it. But there's one more lesson about David. That is the most important thing you can learn from David. The most important thing you can learn about. And we'll we'll press more into this a little bit next week, but I just want to say it quickly. David thrived in weakness, but he struggled in strength. He thrived in weakness, but he struggled in strength. In David's seasons of running from Saul, which I can imagine were terrible, living in caves, Constantly looking over your shoulder because the king of all of Israel is hunting you. miserable season of life. In that season, David was a mighty man. And then when Saul died and, 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 and David united the kingdom and, and, and David you know sort of took his his throne and ruled, and things started, started to calm down, and, and David started to take control of the situation and, and they started to be more established. How did things go for David then? Terrible. See, see David's, David's life kind of looks like this. Everything was great. When was it great? When he was weak, when he was chaste, when he was when he was literally uh, uh, when he was literally an outlaw. And then everything started to go bad when he became king. 2 Corinthians 12:9, Paul says this. The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? My power is made perfect in what? Come on, weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul is saying to be strong. And to be weak, and to, I'm sorry, to be strong and to have the power of God rest upon you is to be weak. David was a mighty, powerful man of God when he was weak. And when he became strong, he became weak. Now, I just have two quick things to say on that. If you're in this room tonight and you do not feel established, you feel like you're in a season where you're running from Saul you feel like you're in the season uh, where, where, where Israel is wandering in the wilderness. You feel like you're in the season where the waves are crashing and you don't feel like you have stability and you don't feel like you have control. I just want to say this to you. Do not insert a Saul into your life. It is not the answer. You hear me? It is not the answer. If you are in that season, stop looking for a Saul. And you know what I mean by that. Stop looking for some kind of earthly fix. Some kind of thing that's going to alleviate the pressure. If I just get a king, if I just get established, if I just get control, everything will be fine. No, it won't. No, it won't. It will be fine when Jesus is sitting on the throne of your heart. And don't downplay that season. Don't think, oh, I'll be useful to God when I'm strong. I'll be powerful when I'm strong. No, that's not what the Bible says. It says that you are strongest in your weakness. You will never have a time, like right now, if you are in that season of weakness, to exemplify the power of God. Paul says, I thank God for this thorn in my flesh because it's in this thorn that his power can be made manifest. I don't want to get rid of it, even though I want to get rid of it. Because this is when God's going to really work through me. Don't sell this season short. Secondly, if you're in that season, just because it seems like Jesus is sleeping doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. You hear me? Just because it seems like God does not care right now and God is not speaking to me and I'm not, my devotional life is flat and I don't feel his love and everything is hard, it does not mean that he doesn't love you. He's sleeping, but he knows why. Because he wants to wake up at a point and manifest his power in our life in such a way that will absolutely blow you away, okay? Now, if you are in another season, if you are in a season where you feel like you have control, if you're in a season where you feel like things are going pretty good, first of all, that's good. That's great. Praise the Lord. But watch out. Beware of those seasons. It's in those seasons where the slippery secret idol of control sneaks in. And you start to worship keeping things that way. I'm so glad things are going good. I will give anything. I will take any soul, any time of the day in order to keep things going good. That's a bad place to be in. So I say two things to you if that's you. Number one, soak in the past, present, and future grace of God. Remind yourself of God's grace so that you don't forget and start to think that you are responsible for your rule. And number two, ask God to show you those blind spots. If you feel like seasons are great, it's the best time in the world to fall on your face and say, God, where am I missing it? Because I'm lulled to sleep by comfort. I'm lulled to sleep by a good season. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm in a great season. And God's kind of like, okay, be careful. Watch out. Don't start to think it's because of you or yourself. So may this book be a reminder of The failure of man's kingdom and kingship and the strength and power that comes with God being our king. He wants to be your king. He wants to be your king. Not Saul, him. Amen? 1 Samuel, let's stand. I only went three minutes over. Yeah. Last week, or two weeks ago, I was like 20 minutes over. It was terrible. God, thank you so much that you desire to rule us. God, you're so much better than we are. You're so much stronger and more perfect than we are, but yet you want to be with us. You want to rule us. You want to have fellowship with us, and I don't know why, but I'm thankful for it. And I pray over my friends tonight. My friends that are in hard seasons, God, may they turn to you as their king. May they turn to you as their solid rock. May they turn to you to calm the storms. And God, for those of us in here that are in good seasons, God, may we turn to you to grow. May we turn to you to reveal weak spots. Lord, may we keep you on the throne of our hearts. Lord, I pray that over all of us. In Jesus's powerful name, we love you. In your name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. We'll see you Sunday.